And Surrey RCMP needs some help identifying a suspect in another unprovoked assault on a Syrian refugee. RCMP want to speak to this man after the 18-year-old Syrian boy was elbowed in the face by the alleged suspect for no apparent reason. It happened last month in the 13700 block of 72nd Avenue. Thankfully, the victim only received minor injuries. Anyone with information asked to contact Surrey RCMP. And a reminder, it is a very dangerous time of year for pedestrians. A woman in her 70s is in serious condition tonight after being struck by a transit bus in Surrey. It happened around 3 o'clock this afternoon near the Surrey Central Park and Ride. RCMP confirming the 73-year-old was in a crosswalk at the time. The driver stayed on scene. RCMP are investigating the cause, including whether the setting sun may have been a contributing factor. A major seizure of guns and drugs on display today as Vancouver Police and the Combined Forces Special Enforcement Unit share the success of Project Treachery. The seizure is part of a combined police effort targeting gang violence in Greater Vancouver. And as Jeff Hastings reports, the arsenal they showed off today wasn't even all of it. There was intense curiosity and a little bit of worry last month when police descended on this rural Langley property. But there was little hint of what was happening until now. This would be a staging area where, where criminals prepare and get geared up with this kind of gear before they go to commit their crimes elsewhere. Weeks later, a show and tell of a massive weapon seizure. The farm believed to be part of growing gang violence in the lower mainland, playing an important part in producing gang hits in several cities. I would estimate that this, this stopped and disrupted numerous shootings, possible murders, attempt murders, etc. AR-15... Um, American Tactical is a restricted weapon. There's, a, there's two CZ-858 Tactical rifles. Heavy firepower, the potential for mayhem is obvious. Stolen property and explosives were also found. It was not booby-trapped, the explosives were there, and then we called in our bomb specialist that for, the, for officer safety detonated the devices on scene. Seven people were taken into custody. All gangsters are known associates. Charges have not been announced. I'm not going to talk about the specifics of, of the investigation, what we know or what we don't know about the function around the, the house or, or who was responsible for its ownership. I can't get into those details at this point. The farm hasn't been publicly linked to specific incidents. None of the well-documented and numerous shootings in the Lower Mainland are being pointed out specifically. This is regarded as a major disruption of gang violence, a significant message sent. Jeff Hastings, Global News. A dangerous bank robber who was accidentally released from jail is now back in police custody. Transit police arrested Dean Richard Zastoni at a Burnaby Skytrain station after reports of a robbery on North Road last night. The 47-year-old was originally arrested in Surrey back in November in connection with a string of violent robberies. He was then somehow released from the Surrey Pretrial Centre last weekend. Corrections BC says a full review of his release is underway. The official search for an Australian backpacker missing in Whistler has been called off, but her family, now in town, is not giving up hope. 25-year-old Alison Raspo was last seen leaving a bar in the area on November 22nd, and she texted friends later that night to say she was lost. Erin MacArthur is covering her mysterious disappearance for us, and Erin, some of her belongings were recently found. Yeah, Chris, that's really what's driving the mystery here. Where I'm standing at the Husky in Alpha Lake Park, which is about seven or 800 meters in that direction, Raspa's personal belongings were discovered. Her backpack, a jacket, her wallet, 
but perhaps most critically, her cell phone. Evidence still being gathered at Alpha Lake, even though the search has been officially suspended. Allison Raspa was last seen on the night of November 22nd at a bar called Three Below in Whistler Village. Surveillance video then puts her on a transit bus headed to Creekside after that. And police have been looking at cell phone records from that night. According to reports, Allison was making calls and texting for help as late as 1.15. She was reported missing the next day when she didn't show up for work at the Westin Hotel. While RCMP are keeping all avenues of investigation open, at this point there's nothing to indicate foul play is involved, and it is being treated as a missing persons file. The reality is that as time passes, uh, it becomes uh, less and less uh, likely that we're going to find her with a positive outcome. Um, but we are, we're still actively looking, and we hope that we will be able to find her. Now, we checked with Environment Canada about the weather the night Raspa went missing. It was 10 degrees at 10 o'clock on the night of the 22nd. It cooled off overnight to 3 degrees on the morning of the 23rd. Not as cold as it could have been, but still cold enough for someone not expecting to spend a night outdoors. Raspa's mom and brother are both in Whistler, liaising daily with investigators. They're desperate for some answers. Chris, Sophie. Hope they get them soon. Thanks, Aaron. We are learning more tonight about a dramatic rescue in the North Okanagan that may just earn a man the Husband of the Year award. Trevor Koenig went out searching for his wife Monday night, sensing something was wrong when she didn't return home. Now, he knew that she liked to drive along Highway 6, so that's where he went, using his high beams, driving close to the shoulder and watching for tracks. Eventually, something in the snow caught his eye, and when he looked down the embankment, he couldn't believe what he saw, a car pinned in a tree. He scrambled down, fearing the worst. She wasn't moving, and... And then, you know, I got in front of her and I lifted up her face and her eyes were just staring blank. And I thought, oh, I was too late, you know. But then she blinked. <laughs> she thought I was, a, uh, she was dreaming. She asked if I was real. It's amazing that he was led to that spot and to find her in the conditions uh, that he was faced with. It's a, it, it, it's a miracle. It really is. Vernon's search and rescue helped to hoist the woman up to the roadway some 15 hours after the crash. She was suffering from severe hypothermia and a broken arm. A major cleanup effort is underway at a former homeless camp on the banks of the Chilliwack River. More than a thousand needles and piles of garbage have been left behind. It's a job so big they need a helicopter to lift it all out. John Waugh explains what else they've found. It's hard to imagine that these heaps of trash were discarded by those who once called this place home. It was unbelievable the stuff that's there, and a good majority of it, I'm sure, was stolen. Everything from bike parts to old batteries, the remnants of a homeless camp that had grown along the banks of the Chilliwack River. It kept getting larger and larger, you know, as far as the encampment was concerned. Once a favorite spot for families and fishermen, some say becoming a hot spot for hostility, drug use, and theft. Sometimes there was confrontation with the, uh, the residents that took up shelter here. You know, you didn't know whether you wanted to go through there or not. After trespass notices were issued nearly two weeks ago, the homeless left without incident. With water levels rising, the cleanup clock started ticking. 
The concern, much of the trash would be swept into the river. Just the thought of having uh, needles or propane canisters or other garbage or debris or contaminants entering the stream would be absolutely uh, catastrophic. And just to give you an idea of how many needles were picked up from this one location, this bucket is filled up to here with needles. The last count, 1,313. You know, it's sad. They need somewhere to go, but the river's not the right place. As a helicopter airlifts the bags of trash one by one, it's a scene nearby residents say is becoming all too familiar. 17,000 pounds of garbage removed from the same area after a camp was cleared out in March. The BC wildfire is pulling resources from keeping the homeless at bay. And unfortunately, since there was not enough of us and not enough presence around there, the individuals or some of the individuals came back to the river and set up camp again. As the important river for several species of fish and wildlife is protected once again, some asking the province to do more to help the homeless, putting an end to this ongoing game of cat and mouse with a massive camp cleanup. John Hua, Global News. A reminder, BC Ferries is going smoke-free in January. Come the new year, passengers will no longer be able to light up on the outside decks of BC Ferries vessels or at any of their terminals. BC Ferries says the policy aligns with other transportation services, ensuring everyone can breathe smoke-free air. Discussions will begin in the new year to come up with a new vision for the Horseshoe Bay Ferry Terminal. BC Ferries estimates it could be a $250 million overhaul. Ted Chernecki explains what's driving expansion and how it could change your sailing. Horseshoe Bay handles far more traffic with its three berths than does Tawasin with its five. And the West Van Port was already running at capacity long before this year's expected record as the busiest year ever for BC Ferries. Some of the loading and unloading here is done manually and that slows efficiency. The infrastructure is aging, the population is growing, something has to be done. Well, we are going to start a public engagement process early next year to start to talk to the public and stakeholders uh, about a vision for Horseshoe Bay in the future. Uh, But it is a congested terminal and there is aging infrastructure, so we know we do need to address those factors. The last time BC Ferries suggested Horseshoe Bay should be downsized, about four years ago, by having Nanaimo traffic go through Suwasan instead, the community here pushed back hard, saying they'd be out of business. Those who use the service seem to want everything to stay about the same, not bigger, just more efficient. This is where tourists want to come to. They want to see the coast, not a bunch of whatever's down there. It's a challenging issue, absolutely. You know what I mean? But but we have a lot of small communities within this travel route as well, and it's important that we're all taken care of. And of course, we all know about um, the big one. In the event of a big earthquake, Sawasan will likely be underwater, as could much of Delta and Richmond. So Highway 1 is the dedicated emergency evacuation route. Most of the overpasses have already been seismically upgraded, but not the ferry terminal in Horseshoe Bay. The cost to do that could be as high as $250 million. $250 million uh, was a figure that was used recently, uh, talking about uh, the upper transfer deck at Horseshoe Bay uh, as one of the major projects. With 159 new condos being built in Horseshoe Bay, the North Shore Highway traffic already in gridlock, BC Ferry says any increase in vehicular traffic will likely happen on the Nanaimo to Sawasan run. Ted Schnecke, Global News. But first, there is yet another meal delivery service in downtown Vancouver, this one with an already familiar name. The Uber Eats app says it has already signed up more than 125 restaurants. The company that wants to bring ride-sharing to B.C. is, for now, jumping into an already crowded culinary sector. 
In the world of inner-city app-driven food delivery, business never stops. Oh my God, it's so busy. It's always busy. Never stops. <laughs> and in Vancouver, a new but familiar player is getting in the game. Oh, it's huge. It's something that we've been working on for months. Our goal and our mission at Uber is to, to be everywhere and to be super reliable. It is already a pretty crowded field in Vancouver. Lazy Meals, Click Dishes and a host of others all battling for your eyes on their app. Uber Eats looking to get in on the action, focusing for now on central Vancouver. More than 200 drivers in over 130 restaurants. Dinner gets a lift straight to your front door, but you, you'll just have to wait. We'd love to be launching the Rides product here today as well. We're working hard to do that. Question is how much longer until the service Metro Vancouverites have been asking for is available. Obviously, we know that they're not just here for the food service. Tech expert Lindsay Smith um, says Uber Eats faces stiff competition. But Uber's presence in the province could serve as an introduction to a company and a service that hasn't always been welcome in B.C. If you think back 15, 20 years ago, there was a whole campaign around Vancouver being a no-fun city. And I think that with um, us being the last to the market with Uber, um, it is a reflection or an echo of that history. But attitudes are shifting, says Smith. A legislative committee is reviewing a ride-sharing private member's bill, the appetite for a new way to get around, growing by the day. Nadia Stork, Global News. Right now, Uber lists 16 Canadian cities with its ride-sharing service, many of them smaller than Vancouver, including Calgary, Edmonton, and Ottawa. Of course, there's also Toronto and Montreal. A Washington state senator is introducing legislation to ban open-net fish farms in his state and says B.C. should do the same. And now local conservationists say they have new evidence of the potential damage fish farms can do. At issue is this bloody waste discharged from a plant near Tofino that processes farmed fish. Conservationists say the waste has tested positive for a virus that could put wild Pacific salmon at risk. Linda Aylesworth reports. In the seemingly pristine waters off the east coast of Vancouver Island near Campbell River, underwater photographer Tavish Campbell decided to do a little exploring recently off the Browns Bay fish processing plant. My lights illuminated just these huge billowing clouds of blood water pouring out from the end of this pipe. You know, we were so shocked by what we saw that we uh, went over to Tofino and did another dive just to make sure that it wasn't an isolated incident. It wasn't. The effluent pipe in Tofino was also spewing bloody waste from thousands of processed farmed fish. We thought, oh, we should, we should certainly get this sampled and see what viruses are inside this blood. And those were sent to the Atlantic uh, Veterinary College. Um, and unfortunately, those samples came back uh, positive for Picine rheovirus. 80% of farmed salmon along our coast have the virus. But the Salmon Farmers Association doesn't think that's a problem. So far, to date, uh, there is no uh, cause of sickness from the, the Piscine real virus. Many believe otherwise, like the Department of Fisheries and Oceans head molecular geneticist and biologist Alexandra Morton. When they get stressed, the virus starts attacking the heart. It also damages the skeletal muscle that allows the fish to swim. And PRV is contagious. A study of the rockfish that feed on the waste showed that half were infected. 
the bigger concern, our already struggling wild migrating salmon. So all the fish that are coming out of their natal streams in the Salish Sea and the Fraser River on their way out to the open ocean, they're forced to swim basically right past this plant that's pumping out this blood water. While provincial and federal governments say they'll look into it, nothing has happened yet. And so to raise awareness and pressure, Tavish is streaming live video on Pacific Wild's Facebook page. So by, by installing this underwater camera, you know, we're trying to tell them that, hey, this isn't an issue that you can just uh, wade out. An issue that starts in the open net farms, where PRV initially spreads. The hope that they'll be forced to move into tanks on land. Aquaculture itself is not the problem. It's just allowing the pathogens to pour out of these farms. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. A recent University of Victoria study says solar power isn't worth the cost yet. But don't tell that to one homeowner on Vancouver Island. He wants everyone to know that he is closer than ever to living off the grid. And he has the hydro bills to prove it. Neetu Garcher reports. There's 148 panels in total on my property. I know it sounds like a lot, but it's replacing the electrical needs of 10 people. The power of going solar is front and center thanks to what this Machosen man installed right in his backyard. What's behind me and some panels that are on my home actually generated enough electricity to power the cottage and also the house. And two electric vehicles. Pretty cool that you can actually power your car from the sun. The panels cost Stephen Gilbert about $60,000. They're set up to bring down his carbon footprint and his hydro bills. A cold winter two years ago, I had three very big hydro bills, uh, 1,200, 1,400, and 1,600 in succession. That's when he started looking into this bright idea, and it's already paying off. Take a look at his last three bills, $13, $13, and a $700 credit. Hydro essentially becomes your big battery. So right at the moment, in my home, there's nobody there. The electricity that's being generated from the solar panels behind us is going out onto the grid, and it's being used by my neighbors. But recent research dims the light on going completely off the grid in urban areas, at least in West Coast, B.C. The cost of batteries would be sky high. So those opting to get some panels to offset costs is generating a lot of business in the industry. Past four years, I guess I've done about 40 installations. It's gone wild just because hydro expenses have been going up quite a bit. I've had approximately 100 residents from Machosen and some people from Saanich that I've given tours to. Gilbert now showing off his collection and how easy it is to go green, hoping to get many more people energized about the idea. If more people did this, we'd clean the place up. Neetu Garcha, Global News, Machosen. Well, how's this for a morning commute? A man in Southern California posting his drive to work today. The hillside along the highway, a wall of flames. The aerial view from a traffic chopper, somehow even more surreal. 200,000 people are under evacuation order in the fire zone and conditions could get even worse. The state's top fire official says the threat level for tomorrow is purple. One level above red and the first time that classification has ever been used in California. This is a lot of expensive homes over here. For the Ellis family, the morning commute looked like a drive into hell. Oh, I can feel the yeah. One of the nation's busiest freeways, the 405, flanked by fire, shut down for hours as parts of Bel Air, home to celebrities and mansions, 
went up in flames. This whole place is on fire. My next door neighbor's on fire. This one lost their house. Bianca Cave watched helplessly as her neighbor's home burned to the ground. How intense were the flames? It was a firewall. I can't even tell you how high. All I saw was orange. Right in the center, you can see that there are, in fact, two single-family homes there, uh, completely surrounded. With the air attack protecting the famed Getty Center, hundreds of firefighters on the ground scrambled door to door. Oh, there it goes. Saving dozens of homes. From the hills in Los Angeles to the beaches near Santa Barbara, 200,000 people forced to flee the flames. Santa Ana winds, reaching 70 miles an hour, are driving five major fires. It's not just the wind fanning these flames. The conditions out here are incredibly dry. Southern California hasn't seen significant rain. These are summer-like conditions. Hundreds of homes are gone. The tally will grow, but the toll can't get any higher for Robert Fastenau. That was our house, so it's, uh, it's pretty much gone. Exploding in just moments, these fires are taking lifetimes of memories. Miguel Almaguer, NBC News, Bel Air. Well, despite widespread international opposition, Donald Trump today followed through on his promise to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital. While previous presidents have made this a major campaign promise, they failed to deliver. Today, I am delivering. Not surprisingly, Palestinians took to the streets in the Gaza Strip to protest that decision. Trump's announcement breaks with decades of U.S. foreign policy and has sparked warnings that the move could inflame tensions in the Mideast and complicate peace efforts. Eight of the countries opposed to the decision have asked for an emergency meeting of the U.N. Security Council. Time magazine breaking with tradition today in its annual choice for person of the year. The magazine choosing the women who shared their stories of sexual misconduct by high profile men. The magazine calls them the silence breakers, the voices that launched a movement. Time calls the Me Too movement the fastest moving social change we've seen in decades. And in health matters tonight, a major donation to two B.C. area hospitals. The Gallardi family has donated $25 million to Vancouver General and UBC hospitals. The donation in the name of former B.C. cabinet minister Phil Gallardi and his wife Jenny, nearly two decades after their passing. The money will be used to expand surgical services at both hospitals, including 16 new state-of-the-art operating rooms at VGH. An annual holiday tradition took to the skies today, taking off from Vancouver International. Air Transat and the Children's Wish Foundation taking more than 100 sick children on a special mission. Bring Santa Claus back to Vancouver. Here's a look. Welcome you all on board the flight to North Pole.
Let's go fly, please. Merry Christmas, everyone! How in the world did he get in there? He's magic. He really is. <laughs> All right, Christy Gordon is up in our lobby tonight to talk about a special way you can give back this Christmas with that special tree right behind you, Christy. Mm-hmm. That's right. You guys, it's, so it's the Variety Tree of Hearts. And um, we're raising money for the thousands of kids across the province who need help. And what better way to give back or time to give back than through the holiday season when, of course, it's needed uh, so much. Now, the way it works, this tree is filled with ornaments. And on each of these ornaments is someone's name who has actually donated to Variety. So Linda and David Weaving from Fanny Bay and Cynthia Wozniak from Penticton. And you can also get your name on this tree. All you have to do is go to our website, globalnews.ca slash BC, and you'll see a yellow banner close to the top of the page. Click on that and make a donation, and we will put your name on an ornament and put it on the tree here. And you can also, if you would like, put a message instead or in addition to your name. So some of the messages are giving to variety will make you feel good and May all of your dreams come true in the future. So a great way to give back to Variety. And uh, we will be mentioning these messages and names on the morning news every day this month. Now, it was beautiful weather-wise across the province today. But just over a year ago... We had a ton of snow. It was the first big snow day of 2016 in, well, of the 2016-17 season. Uh, There were school closures, 5 to 10 centimeters across the region. We had commuter chaos. Everything was uh, a mess out on the streets. Meanwhile, today was beautiful. The only thing we had to contend with was the fog. It was also very frosty, and the similar pattern is going to take place uh, through the morning hours tomorrow. So the fog is already starting to take cold. And it's all because of this big upper level ridge that's driving all these systems well to the north of us and uh, keeping it clear. But we're still dealing with that fog and low level clouds. So there's your forecast for tomorrow, everyone, mainly cloudy and through areas like Prince George and down through the south as well, because you're under that layer of cloud because of the inversion. So cooler, lower down, warmer, higher up with that sunshine. South coast, we will once again be contending with a lot of fog, but mainly sunny through the afternoon hours, beautiful temperatures, and we will continue with that pattern throughout the week. Happy birthday to Charlotte, Cliff Talbot, and Jack Ewart. Congratulations to you both. And I would like to introduce you to uh, Kirsten, uh, sorry, Hedberg, and this is Logan Booth. They have been helped by Variety because Logan actually has a kidney disease. He only has one kidney left, and uh, it has hindered him from actually eating. How has Variety helped your family? Um, Variety's been very helpful with us. They helped supply the supplies that Logan needs for his feeding. He's mm-hmm. on a G-tube, and he requires to be fed three times a day, and it can cost upwards of $600 a month to feed him. And you were saying that this has really helped keep your family together. Absolutely did, because at one point in time, I wasn't in a position to be able to afford everything that Logan needed. And without the help of Variety, our family may have been split up because I couldn't provide for him what he needed. So they stepped up when I couldn't, and it's been a godsend. Such a great example of how Variety really keeps families together and keeps little guys like Logan, who needs a transplant, by the way. Logan, is Santa coming to your house this year? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Were you good or bad this year? Good and bad. A bit of both? Do you have some ornaments that you want to put on the tree for us? 
So, Chris, Sophie, a great example of how variety helps out. And we hope that people will also help out. And we'll fill this tree and we'll present uh, everyone's messages and names on the morning news throughout this month each day. Thank you so much for being here, Kirsten and Logan. Logan, Merry Christmas. Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Love his honesty. Yeah. Love his honesty. A little honesty, good, a little Christmas. bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think Santa will focus on the good. I have no yeah. doubt about that. Thanks. Thanks very much. And thanks to everybody who donates on behalf of uh, Friday. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Domino's pizza owner Gary Josephic had a big problem that was about to cost him a lot of money. Gary had matched donations raised by his staff for BC Children's Hospital for a grand total of just under $3,400. But before he could give the money to the hospital, he had put the box with staff donations on top of his car and then drove away. He didn't even know that he'd lost the box until he got a call from New Westminster Police. They called because Shane Griffin had found the money and turned it in. Luckily, the box also contained some Domino's merchandise, and police used that to track Gary down. A lot of people wouldn't have done it. What, what, what made you do that? It's just something I normally would do. If I was to keep the cash, I would lose sleep over it. I lost enough sleep over just being around that much cash. <laughs> I was surprised but also relieved that there are still great people out there and I wish you would come talk to me and just meet yeah. Yeah. oh he's choking up a little bit there and understandably so Shane did stop by the pizza store and left his name and number and Gary says he hopes to at least get together with him and Maybe give him some free pizzas in the next little <laughs> while. Great job, Shane. Very well cool. done. Mm-hmm. A viral video that was shot in BC has been named the most watched YouTube video in Canada this year. Not surprising when you see it again. The shocking video of a sea lion pulling a girl into the water in Steveston topped the list. It was followed by Eminem's anti-Trump freestyle rap and the live stream of April the Giraffe giving birth. As for music, the top trending video in Canada was Despacito. Not surprising, seeing as it's now the most viewed video of all time. Also not a surprise, Star Wars The Last Jedi took the title for most watched movie trailer. Good things. Yeah. Well... Yes, almost all good things for the Canucks, except for one thing from last night. That's what we're going to start with. You know, among the many things the Canucks have surprised us with this season so far is their ability to overcome injuries. The next man up has, for the most part, manned up for Vancouver. But they don't really have anyone who could replace Bo Horvat. And we are waiting to see what an MRI tells us about his right leg, which jammed into the boards in the third period last night. He didn't play after that happened. Here's the situation. Third period, not a big check, nothing obvious, just an awkward meeting with the boards. The MRI was done today. We'll definitely know tomorrow what it says, whether he'll play against the Flyers and whether he'll be able to play beyond that. We'll find out tomorrow. Derek Dorsett obviously wishes he was still playing for the Vancouver Canucks, and every player on the Canucks wishes he was playing as well. But he is happy that he at least got a chance to play in the NHL because most guys who play in junior hockey or the college ranks will never see the light of day in the National Hockey League. He had to quit suddenly, as we all know, because doctors recommended he retire because of neck and back issues. Obviously, I got the two bulges, right? So, um, uh, you know, obviously, uh, if, if they get worse, it could 
you know, go start pushing into my spinal cord or um, it could it could have been bad. And there's there's days that I'm uh, sore, um, stiffness, um, um, but it's it, the the bizarre thing about it. It's it's kind of just you know, in the morning I I feel good, and then later in the afternoon I I feel really sore and uh, some pain and and tightness, and then the next day I feel good again. Um, so it's kind of it's been a tricky tricky injury, but uh, you know that's uh, that's the nerves in long-term aspect I mean uh, your health is everything and uh, I think that's why I know I've I've come to peace with it that uh, I'm making the right decision um, to step away and uh, look after myself uh, because it wouldn't be fair to me or or my kids if I would if I couldn't be healthy enough to enjoy uh, what this next chapter in my life is going to bring. Okay, not to disparage the good name of Pokey Redick, but no goalie wants to be like Pokey. He played 132 games in the NHL, but never had a shutout. And here's something equally as weird. Redick played 164 games in the Western Hockey League, a lot with Nanaimo and New West, and also never had a shutout. Anyway, after last night, nobody will ever compare Jacob Marks and the Pokey Redick. It took him a while, but he finally got his first NHL shutout against the Carolina Hurricanes. And two of his best saves, there he was before the game. He had a very good game against the Leafs and almost got the shutout there. Look at the save here. Oh, yeah. Drop it just to Williams. Actually, two times in this game. Made 30 saves. And he said after Toronto, after he didn't get the shutouts, I'm not thinking about shutouts, but you know he's thinking about shutouts. And so was every other Canuck because he got the big, big hug. Lots of love last night after finally getting his first ever clean sheet in the NHL. Okay. Canucks GM Jim Benning has always been considered a great judge of young talent, and that skill is starting to show with the Canucks. Brock Besser, brilliant first-round draft pick. Elias Pettersson looks good so far in Sweden. But he's always a little cautious to accept any praise about what has happened so far this season. He's obviously happy, but he's not talking playoffs just yet. The additions we made this summertime, um, you know, guys that can put the puck in the net, our defense is a lot more mobile this year. We play a fast game. Um, let's hope that we have some luck with the injuries. Um, you know, we've had some guys out, and we've been able to have other guys step up and play well. So let's hope that that goes well for us, and we'll see where we're at. i got to capitalize my M's. Okay, so speaking of Benning and prospects and guys he's picked up uh, in the recent past, six Canucks invited to World Junior Camps. There you see three on Canada's team, including uh, Kelowna's Cole Lind. Elias Pettersson will be there if uh, he's healthy with Sweden. Will Lockwood for the United States and Ole Olevi for Finland. And Russell Tybert will be with the Whitecaps next year. Didn't have his option picked up, which allowed Vancouver to renegotiate his contract, sign him to a three-year deal today. He's been with the Whitecaps since he was a kid. He was 16 when he started in their residency program back in 2008. And there you go. Here are the mountain conditions, no new snow, none expected for the next several days either, but fine bases everywhere. Whistler Blackcomb close to 150 centimeter base, Grouse 180, Cypress 200, Sasquatch opens December 15th. Revelstoke a base of 125 centimeters, Manning Park 75, Powder King 171. Big White and Silver Star base between 100 and 110 centimeters, Sun Peaks about 85, and Apex open now 75 centimeter base. 
It was a heartbreaking sight, a young deer stranded on a frozen lake and near death. And it would have had a tragic ending if not for some Kamloops residents in the right place at the right time. Ramina Dea has the story. Don Polischuk was hunting for a good ice fishing spot on Tunkwa Lake, west of Kamloops Sunday, when she caught sight of something unusual 250 meters from shore. She was trying to get up because I was coming to her. She was probably frightened. A young deer, about 100 pounds, trapped on the ice for three days. Polischuk tried desperately to contact conservation officers, but no response. It sickens me that, that somebody didn't step up sooner and even when we called no no phone calls back to us i couldn't believe that no one had tried to help her paulis chuck refused to let the deer die she took a chance and called kamloops search and rescue for help on monday several members answered the call immediately even though they don't typically rescue animals we rolled the deer in the toboggan and uh, the deer was exhausted it couldn't couldn't stand up. The ice was just like glass, so we got it in the toboggan. I blindfolded the deer, took it to shore. 30 minutes later, the deer was strong enough to stand up on its own, eventually disappearing into the wilderness. Polischuk grateful to search and rescue. She's still waiting for an explanation from conservation. It's just sad that nobody, though people knew about it three days in advance, that nobody stepped to the plate and actually did something. The Conservation Officer Service confirms it did receive a call, but it's still following up on why no officer responded to Paulus Chuck's complaint. Romina Dea, Global News.